everyone, and welcome to my sauntering podcast. My name is Paul White, and I live in a gorgeous place called Weymouth, and this podcast is a collection of saunters that were born in lockdown, but it's also got some additional stuff which is just fresh, hot off the press. I'm praying that you'll be really blessed and that God will speak into your heart as we take this journey together. So please go ahead and hit the subscribe button to keep updated with the very latest sauntering podcasts. We have a challenging chapter here again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So um, let's have a look at it and see how we get on. Once again, I'm very happy for you to comment on on the Facebook post. Please be nice. If you want to take, if you want to fight me, <laughs> let's give me a call or send me a text or something, and let's talk about it properly. Um, but it's 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 a challenging chapter. That's all I'm going to say up front. But it's one of those chapters, and I don't like doing this particularly. But it's helpful to understand the context that Paul's writing in. A bit because it makes sense of what he's saying. We'll talk a bit more about that as we go along. So he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so here's the context, the Corinthians had written to him already and asked him some questions, but we don't know what the questions were. We can only kind of guess and surmise from his answers. Good morning, Sally. Good to see you. And so he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's really kind of challenging, isn't it? And then he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman should have her own husband. Now, I think the context there is not that if you don't have a wife or a husband, there's something wrong with you. It's like you should have your own, not somebody else's. And you should be desiring your own husband or your own wife, not somebody else's. So there's the context. But it's also very interesting in the in the massive heated debate that we have going on in our society and particularly in the church at the moment. I'm sorry if I'm breaking up. Is everyone got me okay? I think I'm. Uh, I think the signal should be okay. Um, in the context of our society at the moment, we have this massive question, which has been sort of settled in the courts, but I don't think it's been settled in people's hearts that marriage is immaterial, whether it's two men or two women. The Bible here, Paul clearly is saying. Um, that this is a he's clearly saying a man should have his own wife and a woman should have her own husband so she's he's not there's no ambiguity as far as we can see in this this is clearly a heterosexual marriage Paul's talking about here and the head the marriage that God designed in the very beginning when he said it's not good for the man to be alone was a heterosexual marriage The relationship which causes the procreation of every living thing on the earth is heterosexual, isn't it? We understand that. We have a male gamete, a female gamete that come together to produce life. That's how it works. So we understand that. And 
And so the simple explanation is usually the best one. But Paul's saying here that that in the context of temptation, and, and I think we should never underestimate the power of sexual temptation, and there are certain stages of our lives where this is really, really strong, and it's different, we know, from person to person in some ways, but there is that, that kind of strong urge that is very, very deep-rooted in us to have a sexual relationship with somebody and to... Um, kind of continue on in that and enjoy that throughout our lives and so Paul's saying that because of that temptation because of the temptation to sexual immorality which is where it goes outside of marriage he says but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband so that gives us now a context for our sexual relationship which is called covenant so this relationship of marriage is a covenant is a binding agreement between a man and a woman that they will love each other they will be faithful to each other that it's an exclusive relationship that excludes other possible romantic uh, affiliations or in, uh, connections or experiences and says this person is the one that I have chosen to commit my life to for the rest of my days. And that's our understanding of marriage. Nothing, as far as I can see, has changed in God's intention for that, that we should love and cherish each other. And he even uses marriage as the descriptor of himself and his affection for the church. And if God is as fickle as human relationships are currently, then we can't trust anything God says because he might go off and have a relationship with something, somebody else or some other thing, potentially. And so we understand marriage to be a faithful, lifelong, binding covenant that two people enter into voluntarily, out of choice, and commit themselves to each other. Good morning, Katie, and good morning, Kathy, and Phil and Chris. Great to see you. So, um, so now that this is, this is where it can, we really do need to be careful because it gets, compl gets kind of very interesting. <laughs> so verse three, it says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now it depends which translation you read, how that is kind of articulated. What he's saying is that there's a commitment that we enter into when we make our covenant that we will be there for each other and give ourselves to each other sexually um, in that relationship. And so it's a commitment that we will, that not we're going to get to the altar and say, oh, well, maybe not, you know, but we're actually, yeah, this is, this is what it, it says on the tin. This is not just a relationship where we live in the same house, but where we actually give ourselves to each other sexually and lovingly throughout the days of our life. So he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and the wife to her husband. So this is a reciprocal giving relationship. It's not, I think when we talk about rights, it's my right to have sex with my wife or my, my wife saying is my right to have sex with my husband. It kind of is, but it's difficult once we start talking about rights because it's a thing that we give. So it's voluntary, and that's really, really important. And for it to work well, it needs to be given. It needs to be not coercive or used as a weapon. Weaponized sex is a destructive influence in a marriage. It's horrid and 
to use it manipulatively or anything like that. Ah, oh, it's just so bad. So here we go. So let's keep going. So he says, uh, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. Hold your breath a second. Let's read the whole verse. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the, her husband does. But the husband does. Likewise, note the word likewise. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Good morning, Wills. So this is important. So we don't own our own body anymore. My body. So when <laughs> when my lovely wife says you should go to the doctor because there's something wrong with me, she has a right to say that to me because she has shares in this, this piece of <coughs> human flesh. She owns it. She has a covenantal right to tell me to go to the doctor. Oh my, where am I? where Paul just stop now. But he she does, doesn't she? So she is she is entitled to urge me to look after my body, to take care of it, to wash it, to make it smell nice and and do his do the best I can with what the dear Lord felt he would give me in terms of my appearance and so on to make sure I have my hair cut and I shave or whatever it is. If you grow a beard, fine, but do it nice. You know, don't leave bits of broccoli and egg in it. That's not good. And wives, look after your body for your husband and for yourself. But it's like, do it together. Enjoy. Mm, but don't let... Oh, there's so This is so complex and so once we get human about it because we start saying, oh, well, Paul said this and... Paul White said that, and he doesn't think this, and oh, stop it. Let's just understand the spirit behind it. Wills were in 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so he says, um, Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Listen to this, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer... But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying, look, yes, I guess if you want to abstain from sex for a bit in your marriage so that you can pray, great. But don't, like it's a kind of fasting, but don't let this become your badge of spirituality. That, oh, we don't have sex in our marriage because we're far too holy. Paul says, just enjoy yourselves you know it's it's legit enjoy this gift that god's given to you enjoy this glue that glues the marriage together and have fun kids you know enjoy yourselves uh while you can and he's saying you know because there you don't need to give the devil another opportunity <laughs> another opportunity to tempt you and kind of lead you astray into wrong thoughts or other forms of um, fulfillment that could be destructive to your marriage. So he, so now verse six, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind 
and one of another. Now, Paul is writing, it would appear, we understand Paul was single, and therefore he's writing in the context of a person who has given his life completely over to God. Now, I have met priests who've done that within the Catholic Church, and it's true to say that they are given fully to ministry. They give themselves fully to the people they serve. Now, I'm sure the best ones are fully given and maybe others less so and I'm sure everyone's got an opinion about that but what I'm what what Paul's saying is that that, that this is good for me I really am reconciled to this way of life I I've chosen it it's not I've got the Hobson's choice kind of thing the last because no one would have me because I'm so ugly um, I'm given, I've given myself over, sorry, there's a lot of value judgments in that statement, just <laughs> scrap it. Uh, he, it's not because Paul was undesirable that he didn't have a woman. I'm sure a lot of women thought he was gorgeous out, out there preaching and on fire for Jesus. I'm sure he looked great when the spirit was on him. The anointing does take care of a lot of physical imperfections um, and make you beautiful. And so, uh, anyway, so he says, but I've chosen this way of life and I kind of wish other people would as well because it's really, really good for me and I love being available like this. But also, as we see, Paul is thinking very much in the context of Jesus about to return possibly any time. I think Paul probably thought Jesus was going to arrive back, second coming in his lifetime or certainly within living within the kind of lives of some of the people who were he was preaching to we get that sense in a bit which we'll come to but he says so here we go so to the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am so Paul may have been a widower widower or he may have just never found the right person and then thought this is great I'm going to stay like this um but they cannot but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion so what paul's doing here he's saying listen i know you're human beings and so therefore you're going to have this fire in you and particularly maybe if you're younger it might be more strong than if you're older um then you know just fine find a godly believe in person and settle down and enjoy being married but you know great if you can be single so then he says to the married I give this charge not I but the Lord so he's saying this is actually what the Lord wants for you as a married person the wife should not separate from her husband nor uh, sorry the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife so he's saying stick at it enjoy this marriage build on it work at it don't divorce don't separate don't be thinking of marriage as something oh this is now inconvenient to my call to the gospel stay married stay committed to one another demonstrate the the 
wonderful gospel through your marriage. Now, it's really interesting when we look at what Paul says, because he doesn't hold marriage up as the be all and end all, as the only desirable way of life for a Christian person. And I think that's really helpful, particularly if you are single. And there's this great sort of pressure that comes sometimes from church and from, oh, haven't you found a nice man yet? Haven't you found a lovely girl yet to settle down with? Just don't let's put that pressure on people. That is so not helpful, but let's help them and support them and be there for them as their family to encourage them to be all that they can be with or without a spouse. And many people do settle down, do find somebody later on in their lives and it's great, fabulous, wonderful, but it's not essential. Now I know there are a whole stack of issues we could talk about here, but if we do we won't get through the chapter. So I'm going to try and press on. So um, he says, verse 12, to the rest I say, not I not I, the Lord. So he's saying, I am speaking on behalf of the Lord when I say these things. You need to understand that. That if my brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he's saying, just because your wife or your husband is is not a believer yet, you shouldn't divorce them. If they're happy to stay with you, great. Whoops. And so, sorry. So he says, uh, they let's continue on in this relationship if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her and we've seen this many times where a woman has come to faith in jesus and uh they've um the husband is not a believer and sometimes in our experience he hasn't become one for a long long time and yet they've gone on to have a a good marriage and to be blessed together and to love each other and so on. Obviously, it's the desire of every believing woman or husband to have their spouse as a believer too, so that they can share the most precious thing that they have together. But it does require grace and patience and to not keep badgering that poor person to come to church or whatever. Let's, uh, sorry, I'm commenting too much. Let's, let's read on. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. This is interesting stuff. I don't know where this goes. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I think you can, <laughs> let me just read it. Uh, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So if the unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to be married to you, creepy Christian weirdo, or something like, I'm sorry, love, I married you and I liked you because we were going out and partying and clubbing and now you've got all religious and all you want to do is pray and go to church and be with your friends who love Jesus I'm out of this marriage. I'm going to go and find myself somebody who wants to live like I like we used to. Um, that's then Paul says, then let them go. So if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So he's basically saying, stick at it unless the person wants to go. In which case, that's sad, but let it, I guess, you know, let it, let it be, let it happen. 
um, you know, you can't you can't keep someone against their will, can you? Um, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. I'm really sorry about the dog. This is my rule in all the churches. So he's saying, stay in the life that you had when God called you, when you first came to faith. And he says, this is actually how we do it in all the churches. So I'm not making a special kind of rule for you, Corinthians, or making it difficult for you. I'm just saying, this is how it is. This is how we've come. And Paul would have not just reached that decision on his own, unilaterally. That would have been discussed among the leaders and and so on, the other apostles. And they said, how do you deal with this? What do you deal with that? And there would have been a lot of dialogue going on. And they would have come to this after fasting and praying and trusting God and, and, and so on. And so he's right. Let's read on. He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. This is really interesting. So there was apparently a procedure that you could have done to yourself if you had been circumcised and you wished to be no more, where they could do some kind of plastic surgery type of thing um, and restore the bit that had been removed. If anyone wants any more details, email Chris Milner <laughs> and he'll explain it to you. Uh, so... Um, so he says, if if you um, if you were circumcised, great. If you weren't, fine. Don't try and change that now. Don't try and become Jewish if you're not Jewish. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> and actually, he puts in this really important little caveat here. He says, actually, neither of those things are particularly relevant. What is relevant is whether you keep the commandments of God or not. It's, it's your heart towards God. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he, or we could say he or she was when they were called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So Paul's saying, if you're a slave, don't try and, you know, don't be worried about that. That isn't a bad mark against you. But if you get the opportunity to get free, take it, for goodness sake, you know, and, you know, go for it. But for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. This is really important. So in God's eyes, your status is as a freed person, a free person. You are no longer a slave to anybody because you belong to him and you're free. So this is really good. And so he's saying if you get the opportunity to get legally free, take it. Then he says, likewise, he who was free when he... When called is a slave of Christ, you were bought with a price. So that's our redemptive price that buys us out of slavery. So it gives us our freedom. Jesus paid for us to be free from all forms of slavery. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So don't enslave yourself to somebody um, if you have a choice about it. So what Paul's saying, I, I guess, is that if you're in a poor, impoverished situation, 
don't sell yourself to become someone's bonded laborer. That let's actually help you. Let you are free. You're free. Stay free. And I hope Paul is saying that the church will rally round and give you some financial help to get you out of this immediate situation. Although I am reading a bit more into it than he explicitly says here. So, brothers, but he does say that kind of thing elsewhere that we should that our generosity should cover the lack in other people's lives. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let their let him remain there. Or let, gosh, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So there you go. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, just uh, checking through now. I'm going to read this through now, and I'm not going to comment too much on it. I'm going to make a few comments now concerning the betrothed or virgins, it says in some translations, so the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. So he's saying, I'm going to give you my best opinion on this, although God hasn't given me an, uh, a verbatim instruction. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, and here's the context now of Paul's thoughts on marriage, he's saying, in view of the distress, this is a difficult time, I'm not sure if Nero was in power at the time Paul's writing this, but it was certainly a very fraught time to be following Jesus. And Paul says, in view of the present distress, I think it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So don't go out there looking for a husband or wife. If you're single, just live that and live it for Jesus and kind of preach the gospel with your whole heart and so he's really talking to people who are radically wanting to live for Jesus he says do not seek a wife but if you do marry you have not sinned and if a betrothed woman marries she has not sinned yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that Uh, You do. When you're a married person, there are a whole host of different challenges that come your way, particularly when you have children. And many people have said to me in the past, oh, you know, it doesn't even stop when they grow up. (laughs) And and that's true. The The pressures and anxieties change. But our role as parents is a very demanding role and requires a huge level of devotion and commitment to do it well. And so he says, you know, you this is you will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So he's expecting Jesus to return pretty soon. So he says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. That is true. And... uh, The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord 
how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, about how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That is what Paul is after. Paul is after not marital bliss for everyone in the church. He's after their undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, if we want to carry on reading what the Apostle Paul writes, we have to accept that this is his value system. He is an apostle. He's a discipler par excellence. He is trying to make people, um, a a holy people who are undividedly devoted to the Lord. He's not trying to get passengers to fill up the bus. Verse 36, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And so Paul's saying, for goodness sake, find a Christian guy. You know, do use your noggin. You find someone who loves the Lord, it will make it easier for you. Hopefully, doesn't guarantee a perfectly happy marriage. I just want to say that. Just marrying a Christian doesn't make it perfect. Because you're marrying an imperfect person. Although they might seem perfect in the courtship, they're not. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. That word there is blessed, more blessed if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And so Paul's saying, listen, marital bliss isn't all that there is in this life. He said, I am really, really happy and full in my life of undivided service to the Lord Jesus. And he says, that's what I want for everybody. I want them to be unreserved in their service to him and fully devoted to him. And uh, he's put the bar pretty high. But I think it's really important that we understand that marriage isn't a guarantee of happiness, but that there's a lot of commitment and love and sacrifice and mutual giving that makes it beautiful and marriage is a beautiful beautiful thing when it's when Jesus is at the center of it and where we're in a team together raising a family following him with all our hearts or not raising a family if we've not been blessed with that but still following him with all our hearts there's a great joy in marriage wow I think I've probably raised as many questions today as this is answered, and I'd love to hear from you. Um, Have an amazing day. God bless you. I'm just going to stop this. Have a wonderful day.